Creativity shows up where we least expect it. In parenting, and doing our everyday jobs, and for someone in the field of science, in designing experiments and innovating to push the boundaries of knowledge. Today, we will discuss creativity with Dr. Marina Smitherman. She serves as professor of biology, chair of life sciences, and director of the CEDL at Dalton State College. Stay for her fascinating insights about teaching, learning, and science. Welcome to this episode in Season 2 of Dialogues with Creators, a podcast that features discussions and conversations about creativity and what it means to be creative. We are a podcast that delves into the lives and thoughts of people in our region who are using their creativity in diverse ways. When we think about creativity, many times our minds go to the traditional arts, but that is limiting as far as we are concerned. In one of the seminal books about creativity, entitled Flow, by Mihalye Sixens Mihalye, and yes, that's a mouthful, and I'm not sure I pronounced it correctly, he spends as much time exploring creativity in the sciences and business world as in the arts. You can be creative in any number of ways, and that is what this podcast explores. Up to this point, I've interviewed writers, a filmmaker, theatrical directors, an historian, a visual artist, and a publisher. Today, we will really shift paths and talk about creativity in the biological sciences and in teaching, and mix those together a little bit, because we are speaking to an expert in both, Dr. Marina Golding Smitherman. Dr. Smitherman is not a native Georgian, but neither am I. However, she has embraced her community since moving here in 2008. She is married to Charles, and they are the parents of Liam and Owen, who are 12 and 10. Where she moved from is a story in itself. So, Dr. Smitherman, Marina, what can you tell us about your background? (laughs) Um, Thank you, Barbara, and thanks for asking me to speak to you today. Really honoured, actually. Um, so I'm, I, as you said, I moved here in um, in 2008. That's about 15 years that I have lived in this in this area, in this community. Um, originally, I was born in London, actually, um, but we moved to to Oxford when I was um, almost five. So I, I think of Oxford as home, and um, that's a really pr- privileged thing to be able to say because. Um, the town of Oxford is is so international. <laughs> You're going to bump into um, people of all walks of life there because of the university and its impact on the surrounding community. So I was very lucky to both go to school and then later university in, in Oxford, England. And so I got um, degrees from Nottingham, Manchester, and also Oxford. That's where I did my PhD. And I moved from there to Dalton, Georgia, <laughs> which, as you can imagine, is is more than a little bit different. So, in terms of my background, um, my undergrad um, is in in the biological sciences, in molecular and cellular biology. My master's is in public health, and my PhD is in clinical medicine. So, um, when you look at the intersection of that, it's really focused on how basic sciences, what what basic sciences teach us about how we can you know, keep people healthy and 
living better lives for longer, thriving in in the things that they do. So that's sort of the intersect of the work that I I did before I moved to Dalton. And um, I've been at Dalton State for 15 years. I love it. It's a wonderful community to be a part of. And um, there, instead of doing basic lab research, although I do undergraduate research with students frequently, um, I focused much more on on teaching and learning, teaching in the sciences. Excellent. And I have a lot of questions I would want to ask, especially um, the culture shock probably of coming from <laughs> I know you and I have talked about that. I remember you told me one time you wanted to write a book called Biscuits and Gravy because those words mean different things. <laughs> British <laughs> versus uh, American, especially Southern English. And uh, I've, I've just, it's a fascinating um, discussion we could have. So here at Dalton State, we have a tradition called The Last Lecture which comes from the book by Randy Pausch, who was a professor of uh, computer sciences in uh, Pennsylvania, found that he was dying of cancer and wanted to give a uh, his last lecture to his students and share his wisdom and insights, and it became a famous book. We recently attended a wonderful last lecture by our college president, Dr. Margaret Venable, who will be retiring from Dalton State soon. And she spoke on finding your passion and purpose. And Marina, I believe you are a person who has done that. What about, I'm first going to ask about biology. What about biology and and those related areas fulfills your purpose and passion? Oh, those are great questions. You know, they asked me <laughs> um, several times to do the last lecture. And I said no every time because I, I didn't feel ready. But when I heard when I heard her speak, I thought actually, you know, I do feel like I have some things that might benefit. Um, maybe I maybe maybe next time I could do it. But yeah, I, I remember the day that biology began to appeal to me. Um, you know, I, I was uh, let's see, thirteen or fourteen years old, so middle school age, and up until then, um, science had just been rote learning a fact. <laughs> Some I was interested in, some I wasn't. A lot of plants, a lot of insects. Um, no offense to anyone that's into those, but that's not my jam. And um, I remember the day that we came in and we started a topic on human health. And instead of simply lecturing to us on it, um, our teacher, who I was very lucky to have, our teacher, I was taught biology by Dr. Krebs, <laughs> um, who was the wife of the grandson of Hans Krebs, who discovered the Krebs cycle, which is a really important part of biochemistry. So, you know, wife of an Oxford Don, she was pretty creative in the classroom. But this was the first time that something that she'd done had really appealed to me. And she said, well, we're going to look at blood pressure today. Hmm. And you're going to, here, here's the equipment. You're, you're going to design what you're interested in testing and how you're going to do it. And I, I can remember that moment, I'm like, wow, <laughs> we have a say, we have a choice, we can test anything you know, in, in any in any way. And for me, that just sort of immediately awoke um, a curiosity and a fascination to sort of push boundaries and learn as much as I can and learn more. So, I mean, I remember the day, I can remember the classroom, I can remember where I was sitting, when the sort of shock hit me of just like, oh, I have autonomy here to... To, to, to be as creative 
as as I like with this. And I, I you know, that that's not it's not something we traditionally associate with the sciences. You know, when you think creativity, you think painting or <laughs> you know, even maybe writing, but creativity of thought um is what leads to innovation. And so for me that that was that moment of like, oh wow, well this is fun. Um so to, to me, that's when science came alive as, as a place that I could express. I think everyone needs a creative outlet of some kind. And for me, that became my creative outlet was experimental design. That is a fascinating story. And there's so many things I'd like to pick apart there. One is the idea that the students were given um, a measure of autonomy and choice and agency in what they chose to learn. Um, I, I like to say in my, my communication classes that I want them to find their voice. And the way they're going to find their voice is if they get to talk about things that they care about rather than just uh, me telling them they have to. So that is so, I mean, there's a, there's a podcast there just in itself about <laughs> being students autonomy and it takes creativity to do that while still teaching them the curriculum you know and finding ways to do it so thank you for that story and that being the case you you also um are an expert in teaching you have become the director of the center for excellence in teaching and learning and that is really i think you're maybe your second or just a an equal passion that you have so talk about that yeah i mean i think you were right when you said that i found i found my purpose and passion in the intersection between both the sciences and teaching and learning because um you know as a as a, an early career teaching professor i would I would really enjoy thinking about how to create an authentic real world learning experience in, in a classroom setting. And so the happiest that I was ever, I think in, in my office, and I'm thinking of my old office in the, the Sequoia building, the office doesn't exist now they've renovated, but, um, yeah, I would, I would sit down and take a, an hour or so and think through what, what do I really truly want students to get out? of this learning experience and and how can I bring in the real world as much as possible and so for me the opportunity to, to design which is a highly creative exercise to design a learning experience that is both intentional informative it's significant and it's it's interesting but also allows the students to to exercise their own autonomy and creativity and so I think because probably that's my that's my go-to autonomy has always been important for me in learning. And, you know, that's partly because everyone has that need to learn in, in their own preference. You know, we, we allow students to differentiate the ways that they're achieving the learning objectives. And so, you know, I can think about times where I'm particularly learning, t teaching students about, about healthcare, about how to ex explore their own, um, their own need for <laughs> healthy habits and behaviors, but also working with patients and helping them. And so I can think about many times that I designed experiments, not experiments, um, learning experiences that allowed the students to, for example, 
practice investigating an outbreak of a disease outbreak, you know, whilst there are step-by-step guidelines as to how to do that, I was able to, you know, design, you know, bring that into the lab and actually deliberately contaminate either spinach or peanut butter and ask them to really think about following the steps through and figuring out how they were going to test for that themselves. So bringing both the the creativity and autonomy for them with the very real world, this is actually how you do this. Um, And I had another one that I designed that was um, allow them to be public health nurses for the day and advise patients with specific dietary restrictions about how they could eat at restaurants that they go to. So students would choose their own restaurants of interest um, which patient they were interested in serving and put together a menu, but then actually share what they learned um, with the class about about the, their restaurants. And so it's it's real world. You know, I think students and we, we'd have a big discussion about whether it would change their choices. It was real to them because you know they that was their life. You know, you sort of meet them where they are. And so I could have lectured to them on, well, here are the standard, you know amounts of each thing you need every day but in this way they learn they learned that through having to explore and find um those those measures for people that 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 had to work a little bit harder at it so you know designing things like that is so creative and i think people don't think about either science or teaching as as that creative honestly but for me it's innovative it's new it's fun it's different and um requires you to think outside the box from what you could pull off a shelf in a book, honestly. Um, and uh, I've also done a lot of curricular design, mm-hmm. both for, but actually both for, for for faculty and for students. And so I've put together programming, you know, undergraduate research, for example, programs for our students to really explore um, and share, that's sharing my passion with the students, right? That was what got me the experimentation, the exploration of the subject was what got me excited about science. And so sharing that with students became really important to me. So I designed our undergraduate research experiences for that reason. But now, you know, I work with mostly faculty um, designing um, ways to explain and explore different teaching techniques with faculty in a real world setting. So as much as possible, I, I design a session or a curriculum that will model the techniques that I'm teaching them about. I remember when you, when you were leading the, um, the center, what was the center for teaching and learning at that point, you were the founding director. Uh, when you were leading it, we had, we did absolutely have a, a talk by someone on how we shouldn't use PowerPoint in the classroom. And she, she gave that talk to us using PowerPoint. And I thought at that point, how funny. And it could have perhaps that would have been a more creative way to do that. And so from that moment on, when I designed something, I try and model for faculty and learning experience for faculty. I try and model as much as possible the techniques that I'm wanting them to use. Mm-hmm. Um, which is so when we, we we have a session on discussion techniques, um, we will practice and try all of those discussion techniques whilst talking about the benefits and the importance of those. And so I think those are ways that I try and bring the creativity into the role that I have at the moment. You know, when you were talking, I thought about something that you introduced me to, which was the the high impact practices. 
And the high impact practices, everybody, well, anybody who knows anything knows the list of them. But really what made it work for me was when I saw the quality matrices and and those what makes high impact practices high impact. And one of those, of course, is the real world experience and application of it. And I think that is where students, their their light bulb goes off, that this is actually something I would use in a real situation. And it's so it's so important, as well as the other aspects like the the public performance of it or the public co- display of competence or these other things. So I, I bring that in for anybody who's listening as an educator, if they're not familiar with the high impact practices, that uh, they Google that and find out what they are because they're extremely important and they really, I, I don't know, I don't know if I want to say revolutionized, but they really made a big difference in my teaching in putting a framework for what I had already been doing that was experiential, but I really didn't have the, maybe the the language or the vocabulary for it, as they say. So, yeah, you were talking about now your your work of leading other professors to better teaching, and and you mentioned how that came into your life. What do you find about that that is particularly, you know, again, intersecting with your passion and in your purpose? Wow, that's a great question. You know, I think that teaching appealed to me for a number of reasons. You know, I got I got into teaching really, I really, <laughs> as a teenager, my sister was not doing well in biology and, um, you know, I, I had done okay with it um, after those initial experiences and so I, I got I got into teaching teaching her so um you know but but teaching in the sciences to me I just enjoyed working with people and I enjoyed helping them to love the subject as as much as I did and I think that's why a lot of people you know really go into teaching um and so it just became something that I enjoyed more than than the lab experience honestly it became even though I loved um, experimental design and pushing the boundaries. I really just loved working with people more, and I think that the reason I chose teaching in the sort of the human health and clinical sciences was that if you go into medical practice, you can work with X number of patients and help save X number of patients in your working career. But if you train future healthcare professionals and you train them really well you can potentially have a much greater or even exponential impact than you could practicing yourself, right? If you train a student beautifully or two, three hundred students a year to to really think critically and explore and understand as opposed to just rote learn, you potentially benefit all of the patients that they work with in their career, which is a far greater number than you could have yourself. And I guess that probably sounds egotistical in some ways and it's not really it's just you know I'm very much a, per- a person who wants to leave the world just a little bit better for being here and so um it was sort of a natural step from that when I was asked to step up and lead the center it was sort of that was on the back of designing those undergraduate research experiences and some other service work but and it was a natural step for me because it's the same exponential impact you know in, in my own class I can teach students to the best of my abilities and give them you know really well designed learning assignments and that's just you know I can only help the students I can work with myself physically within within that year but if I can help 
faculty, particularly those that are new to, to teaching, because I think that that's intimidating in so many different ways. If I can help them have the confidence that they know what they're doing in the classroom, because we as um, faculty in academia don't necessarily get taught how to teach. Um, there is an assumption that we were great grad students and therefore we know how to explain and communicate well our discipline to novices, which is very, very rarely the case, actually. So I think it it, it was a, an opportunity to to have that exponential impact to allow faculty to feel confident that they're using evidence-based techniques. Yeah, when you use a technique that works, man, it's good for everyone. It's good for the students because they achieve the learning outcomes. It's also good for you as a faculty member because you tried something new, it keeps you fresh, it keeps you alive, it keeps you from burning out. We know that. And, and so I think that, I think probably at my core, I'm someone who likes to work where my purpose and passion and, and where I feel like I'm honestly helping people the most and making the, the, the most positive difference in life. Um, I guess who was it? George Eliot that said, I think, you know, that's our purpose in life is to exist, to make life easier for others. That's not a direct quote, but that's the uh, the essence of what he said. And, and I think that that's kind of what drives me is if, if my time here helped make things a little bit better for others, then, um, then I did a good thing. It was worth it. <laughs> right. Um, I, I have been teaching a long time and I learn something about teaching every day. <laughs> and sometimes it's teaching based on, as you said, the evidence-based techniques, things that uh, we know now that we didn't know 10 years ago about how people learn, how the brain works, which is a fascinating area in itself. And sometimes it's that the students that I'm teaching now are definitely not the ones I had 20 years ago or longer ago, you know, that they're still very bright and they still, you know, are capable of learning, but they're just approaching it in a very different way. And their expectations, their problems, their, their challenges are just, um, different. Um, I was having a discussion this morning with a mother who I, I got to meet and her student, her young child, not child, but you know, uh, adult college age child now is on the autism spectrum. And, you know, while of course that existed 20, 30 years ago, of course it did. It always has. There was not the same understanding of it or same recognition of it. And you know, so that that brings a, the neurodiversity aspect to the classroom, and how how do they experience learning? Uh, it's you know, it's we know we know a lot more about that. There's still a whole lot more to learn. So as far as teaching is concerned, there's we're always learning, and uh, more about it if we want to be good at it. I'm not sure everybody wants to be that good. <laughs> I think like everyone, we can resist certain new things, but um, it never stops being a field where there's more to learn. So, yeah, uh, and I, I appreciate what you're doing because you're bringing a lot of different ideas to the uh, to the the Center for uh, Excellence in Teaching and Learning. Uh, there's been a, 
an emphasis this uh, semester I saw on diversity and different types of diversity and um, other kinds of things. And of course, uh, the center, they have book groups and different, uh, I'm reading a book that was recommended, um, The Relationship Rich Education. It's fascinating. And so there's always something more to learn about teaching. I don't think we ever stop in, in any area. And learning is such a fascinating area. Uh, so many, many people do not think, and uh, this goes back to my original statement, that the hard sciences, and I don't like those terminologies, the hard and soft sciences, but uh, they don't think of them as being an area of creativity. Why, why is this wrong? And how, did, how does that make you feel? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I think even I would have said that myself, but it, it's not what you would traditionally associate as with as, with creativity. And yet, um, to be able to to be able to design experiments, you have to have originality of thought. And I think that when you're truly creative, um, you know that originality of thought that's coming from you and that and the product that comes as a result of that, whatever that looks like, is something that only you could have created. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think it's it's when you look at the outcomes from different different research labs, they may use the same they may use the same basic techniques. They may try and make sure that the variables stay constant so they're testing what they believe to be testing. But the idea that you've created a hypothesis or made an observation and thought, I wonder what happens if I try this. Right. Mm-hmm. That is in and of itself a creativity of thought and and in a innovation that that only you as the observer can, can make and so i think that's the fundamental basis of science is is making an observation creating a hypothesis from that and then designing an experiment to test it so whilst we have standard protocols that we follow um, often you have to to play with those for my phd i did something that was technically very difficult and um so i was looking at i was using human blood samples but i was actually looking at parasite dna within them, which is, as you can imagine, a very, very small part of the overall DNA sample. So I had to find a very creative way to actually get at the small amount of parasite DNA that I was trying to, to, to assess. And I had a really you know, solid hypothesis and a good question, but it was certainly very difficult. And so I, for two straight years, had to try a variety of different um, ways and approaches to actually get any data at all to get the experiment to work. So it required an excessive amount of creativity of thought, thinking about, okay, well, let's try this. Okay, let's try this. It didn't work. I wonder if this might work. Let's see if I can apply this to this particular scenario. And so that requires continuing to think outside of the the box or or the the what is, the status quo, right? You're always pushing that boundary to be able to keep moving things forward. And so to me, and I think, you know, what happened with, with COVID and, and all the different vaccines is probably a really, really good example of every lab that approached it, approached it differently, right? The the, the problem was still the same. We had to develop mm-hmm. a vaccine very quickly to prevent a large number of deaths from something brand new. And that wasn't something anyone had seen before. And so the creativity and originality of each lab's different approach to that actually moved the boundaries of science forwards um, because of the situation we were in. And so um, 
you know, no two researchers are going to come up with the same, the same way of approaching that, that problem. So to me, that is in essence, originality of thought and, and creativity to be able to make those leaps and bounds. And so, yes, it's not painting, it's not sculpting, it's not, you know, playing music, but it's, to me, uh, an intensely creative thing. So yes, I agree. I, I think that whilst we don't traditionally associate the hard sciences with, with creativity, um, if you're really truly, you know, breaking boundaries and thinking outside the box, it actually has to be. Mm-hmm. Yes, I am. Um, speaking of COVID, and um, that was an excellent example. I'm I'm kind of fascinated with this, what was called the Spanish flu epi- epidemic back in 1918, 1919. And I'm reading the John Barry book about that right now. And what's very clear is that there was there had to be so much creativity, so much thinking outside the status quo, et cetera, for these, uh, these scientists, mostly men, of course, at that time, but, but there were women involved as well, to deal with this incredibly contagious and dangerous um, virus that was just killing people like that that's one thing that you know people didn't usually drop dead from covid but in in the spanish flu and i i use that term because people you know i had a student ask why they call it spanish flu and it was simply because they interestingly it was all over the world but the spanish press didn't uh, censor their papers during war wartime, and so it got named the Spanish because they were the only one who were talking about it. <laughs> kind of strange, but um, you know, it just amazes me because in this book he goes into such detail with how the scientists had to work so quickly to come up with you know different ways to experiment and to extract the virus and to you know, terminology I don't pretend to know, but to to make the serums, to try to find something. And it's it's an amazing story. But um it's that's something that I had um it just opened my eyes a lot to to that area of the um the the scientists. And I do have to tell you that up to this point in this podcast, we have not defined the word creativity <laughs> purposefully because uh we just say it exists everywhere, and maybe sometime we'll get to a, the definition of it. But I um, just like saying it's only in the arts. Putting a definition on it may be a little bit limiting. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so I haven't I haven't quite done that yet. But uh, and consequently, I've had a lot of great discussions. So, when are you happiest creative creatively? Oh gosh, that's a good question. I think there are several, there are several different things that I do to, I think everyone needs a creative outlet, whatever that looks like. And so for me, that's either creating a learning assignment that I think is going to really engage the students, right? They're really going to get engaged and interested in the topic and reach the learning outcomes and they're going to enjoy it as well. I think that's, you know, learning is is fun and it should be. Um, so I think designing learning experiences is one thing. Um, I think another, this may be unique to teaching. And so I'm thinking about this with my work with faculty and students is, is also, you never quite know what questions you're going to be asked in a class session. 
And so sometimes that can bring out just really good discussion and really, you know, new things that you haven't talked about with other classes or you haven't thought about. So I think that when students ask open and honest, authentic questions, sometimes that can, you know, when you're creating answers to questions, sort of like we are discussing now, I think that can be creativity in the way that you craft a response. I, I've never been one for writing down lecture notes because I like to create the learning experience in situ while I'm doing it. So I have a plan and I have a, a general guideline of time, but I, I find it much more authentic to sort of create it from scratch each time. So I think that that can be an avenue for creativity for me when, you know, a student asks a particular question, I'm like, oh yeah, we can explain it this way. And I, I find a new way to connect with the students and connect them with the material. And that then becomes part of what I do because, wow, that was a good way to explain it. And it was as a result of a student asking a question. And I think that that can be a creative outlet for me. And of course, um, you know, I like to write, you mentioned that, um, you know, I've been keeping notes on, on my experiences moving here because it's, it's very different to what I grew up with. And so from time to time, I do some creative writing, not necessarily for, for publication, but just, just to keep, to keep writing. So I do write in, in teaching and learning and that's, um, I don't really view that as creative, which perhaps that I should, but I often, you know, work on stories and, and sort of personal writing projects, really just to sort of keep my hand in, in the creative process. Um, just yeah, for another, a sort of another outlet. So it's really fun. It's just for me. And I journal a lot and I'm sometimes just surprised at what comes out of your brain. <laughs> you don't realize you've been thinking that just sort of comes out, wow, where did that come from? You know, so I think it's any moment like that when you're prompted to not just do the same old, same old, but you can be surprised with, with what, what, you, what you've been thinking that you weren't necessarily consciously aware of. Well, and that's something that fascinates me too is, and it's a topic for another podcast, maybe I'll get one of the psychology professors in on this, but is this the unconscious and the subconscious mind. And when you start talking about that, people think you're getting some sort of mysticism and you're simply not. It's just that I'm always surprised, even like you say, in the middle of the class, what comes out of my mouth. And it's that is so appropriate in that moment and you just where where did that come from and the same with writing you know it's in there we're just not conscious of it as we're reflecting on a daily basis and uh, i'm fascinated with the whole idea of reflection although i think that it's we use the word so in so many ways and 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 we throw it around. We tell students to reflect that I'm I'm playing with how can we explain reflection better, and how can we set up a paradigm of reflection or a a, a hierarchy, you know, like like Bloom's taxonomy or something, uh, to really teach people to reflect and and in a practical way that they can use it. So, yeah, that's that whole idea of what you know in the moment, what comes out. Um, and one theory of creativity is for at least for writing is that it's when you put two very opposite things together that seem to have no connection whatsoever and then you you find the connection that that is that's part of creativity as well but again we're not going to define it 
Well, I mean, that's that that would be the same as, as the outcome of a science experiment. Yeah. You've got Anything. perhaps an outcome that you would not expect given the hypothesis and you, that drives you to think about something in a totally different way. So I think that is that is a one possibility when you get to defining it <laughs> to me. <laughs> we ever do. I mean, I was thinking as you spoke about the creativity of thought as it comes out in speech. And I was thinking that that sometimes that's driven for me by wanting to help students as best I can. And so I, I think that sometimes when you've got a student who's really struggling to understand a topic and you've gone through you've gone through it the way that you the way that you, you usually go through it with someone. Right. So you would well, you know, we can think about it this way, we can think about it this way. And you've gone through your usual mechanisms of explaining it and the student's still not getting it. I think that's at the point at which when your drive, your motivation to help that student reach the learning outcome, that also, you know, pushes the boundaries a little bit. And that's sometimes when you get those those additional good ideas and then they become part of what you do because it was successful with that one student. I mean, I think that it's really good to acknowledge that there's mm-hmm. not just who we tend to default, don't we, to teaching the way that we were taught and that we successfully learnt. Um, and then, and yet there are so many different student needs. And and I do think that that, that if we're open to it, can help us push the, the boundaries and serve more students. So that's the only thing I can think of as fantastic. <laughs> no, that's, that's great. I think uh, the old saying, necessity is the mother of invention in a sense. But, um, but yeah, we are in those situations because of our emotional desire to to connect with that student and help them learn we dig deeper yeah and and not just default to what we've had used before and um i think that's you know that that's one thing that in dealing with a younger and deeper uh, and different i should say type of student i've had to to dig deeper for how i could make the experience in my classroom connect with them in a way that I wouldn't have even thought of, you know, back in years past, because especially um, references that, that I would have had, you know, they, they don't have any reference points for a lot of things. And I'm not just talking about, you know, landline phones and <laughs> I'm talking about pop culture references or anything like that. You know, I just, I, I can't keep up with their pop culture and what they like. I gave up on that a long time ago, uh, simply because it's so diverse anymore. So, you know, you, you have to find those commonalities and that goes back to the, the two, the two very different things coming together. Thank you so much for being with us today. And I appreciate your time and your great insights into teaching and uh, learning and science. That's great. It was my pleasure. Thank you for asking me.